Okay, we are in 2 Samuel chapter 5. We're going to finish chapter 5 and move into chapter 6. The ways of the kingdom is what we're looking at today. The ways of the kingdom. I'm sure you've probably recognized as a Christian that God's ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. God does not do things the way I would think they should be done. Praise God. Um, he is majestic. He is holy. In fact, we would say this, as much as God, God is love, and people talk about the fact that God is love from 1 John, one of the descriptors of God's nature and character is his holiness. The word holy in Hebrew speaks of his otherness, his aboveness, that he is separate and distinct from what he created. In Isaiah uh, chapter six, when uh, Isaiah sees the vision of the Lord, the angels sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The world and what he created is an expression of his glory and his majesty, but his holiness is his. He is distinct from what he made. As one pastor put it in the past, he is a star breather. He speaks and galaxies are created. And by the way, he creates from nothing. He didn't have to borrow the dirt or the architectural plans to do what he did. He is alone, majestic in his nature and attributes. And he says to his church in 1 Peter, be holy for I am holy. In Revelation 4.8, the angels in heaven, as John gets a glimpse of the heavenly sing, sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And this triple holiness, some people think it speaks of the Trinity, but stacking language one on top of the other in Hebrew and here in Revelation in Greek speaks of the power, the incredible height and depth of God's holiness. This is who he is. God is holy. And his ways are connected to his holiness. And as we look at a chapter, we're going to move from chapter 5 into chapter 6. We're going to see a scene with something called the Ark of the Covenant, which is pictured behind me. This incredible little box, which was the holiest of furnishings in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And this piece of furnishing reflects best, I think, in the temple area, the tabernacle, the person of Christ. It was made of wood and gold. Wood speaking of humanity, gold speaking of deity. Above the box that was made was two angels' wings touching the cherubim. And that area was called the mercy seat. Once a year, one man, the high priest of Israel, on one day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, would go in there and that not without blood. And he had to have everything right in his life. He had to be trained and prepared for this moment, would go behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies and he would meet with God there. And atonement would be made for the sins of the people. Inside that chest of the Hebrews that they carried around, as we'll see in various uh, segments of their history, they eventually placed the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are a constant testimony that I fall short of God's ways. I, I have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But above the chest is the mercy seat. And the blood is sprinkled there. And Jesus Christ, literally from the uh, book of Romans, is our mercy seat. He is uh, our righteousness, if you will. And in this chapter, as we look at God's ways and God's kingdom... We're going to see David at the center of all of this. And David is going to have some highs and lows. And something radical is going to happen in chapter 6. A man who attempts to steady the ark is going to be killed on the spot. His name is Uzzah. And it's going to bring up some questions in David's mind and the minds of the people about who is God and what are his ways. And I'll tell you this. There are times when you read your Bible when your caricature of Jesus Christ, your idea of who God is, might be shaken to the core, may I suggest that you read all the way through the Bible? Because you're going to see some things in the Bible that may dampen the party <laughs> of who you think God is. When you see Jesus, sometimes he's pictured as, you know, this soft, gentle person with a sheep over his shoulders, always nice. But then you see Images of Jesus going into the temple in Jerusalem and turning over the money 
changers tables and cracking a whip, literally before Indiana Jones cracked a whip in his movies, Jesus did. Jesus was a radical man's man. He was harsh sometimes, you know, to the religious leadership. He called them out. He, he said, you're gonna make your converts twice the child of hell as you yourselves are. And then at other times, he was incredibly gracious. In times when you thought he might be harsh, he was gracious. And he is incarnate deity. To see him in action is to see the heart of God. And we're gonna see in this particular section uh, David's interactions with the Lord. Father, as we get into your word, I pray you'd get your word deep into us. Teach us your ways. David prayed, Lord, teach me your ways. If there's any wicked way in me, Lord, get rid of it and lead me in the everlasting way. You know, life does come down to either we're gonna do it our way or your way, Lord. And your ways sometimes are not easy for us to understand. But I pray that you would show us what you want us to see and you'd speak to our hearts about what you are making us to be. You tell us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's not to work for our salvation, but to work out what you're already working in. And that means that we are saved. If we're a Christian, we're saved, but we're called to work it out. And I pray that you would do a work in our hearts uh, for your glory today in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So here is 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 17. Just to set the uh, backdrop for a second, David has relocated the capital to Jerusalem, the city of God. He has had victory over the Jebusites. He is being celebrated as the king. There's been victory and celebration. And David feels like finally he's getting to the place where he's been called to be. He was anointed years before, but finally he is realizing the calling in his life to be the king of Israel, to be the anointed one, to foreshadow the coming Messiah, the anointed one. And whenever that happens, we're gonna have uh, adversaries and enemies. Here's what it says, verse 17, chapter five. When the Philistines heard that they, Israel, had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to seek out David. And when David heard of it, he went down to the stronghold. Now, David was finally in the position that he had waited for for so long. He had endured Saul and many, many years of being on the run and living in caves and maybe not even fully understanding God's will and God's ways. And now, finally, he's on the throne of the nation and the Philistines rise up. Now, at one point in David's history, he had acted like he was kind of in league with the Philistines under King Achish, but he, he really always had his heart for Israel. And now he's in a leadership position and the Philistines got nervous. Remember, David was the one who slew Goliath, who was this huge Philistine giant. And they would, they would say, you know, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And so they were a little nervous. This man seems to have the power of God behind him. He's bold, he's courageous, he's anointed. And so the enemy began to stir up. And sometimes when we find ourselves in a place where we finally have realized maybe a ministry dream or a position or a business or a relationship, be assured the Philistines will come. The enemy will come. There is a spiritual battle that we're all fighting, but the battle belongs to the Lord and greater is he that is in us than he, what? That is in the world. Now, the Philistines came and spread themselves out, verse 18, in the valley of Rephaim, Rephaim, southwest of Jerusalem, running southwest of Jerusalem. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will thou give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up. For I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. Now, simply put, David prayed. David inquired. That's all that means. David prayed. He knew the Philistines were rallying against him. He went to the stronghold, a defensive posturing, and he prayed, Lord, what should I do? And let me just say to you, the lesson is very simple, but very profound. Pray before you make major decisions. This was Saul's downfall. Saul really wasn't a man of prayer. And then when he prayed, he wouldn't really wait on the Lord. But David inquired of the Lord. We don't know how the Lord led him. But the most important thing is that he prayed. We don't know how the voice came to David. But David was told to go up, that victory would be his. So David came to Baal Perazim, verse 20, and defeated them there, that is the Philistines. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like the breakthrough of waters. Therefore, he named the place Baal Perazim, 
which means the Lord who breaks out. There may be a mountain named this if you want to write down Isaiah 28, 21. The Lord won the victory for David. David inquired, stepped out into the battle, and the Lord won the victory. That's simply how your Christian life needs to be. The Lord may, you know, something may be going on. You inquire of the Lord. He assures you, this is, I'm in this. This is what I want you to do. And you go out. And you go out expecting victory, right? Because God is good and God is great. And so he named this place. And in verse 23, they, they the Philistines abandoned their idols there. So David and his men carried them away. There's some parallels in 1 Chronicles 14 and 15, which I'll be mentioning if you want to hold a place there. It says, when the Philistines abandoned their gods there, David gave orders that they were to be burned with fire. One of the gods of the Philistines was a god named Dagon. He was half fish, half man. And he was supposed to be kind of the, the leader of the council of the gods. And when the ark was stolen by the Philistines in 1 Samuel, they took the ark and put it in the temple of Dagon. And that, uh, the ark was there and Dagon was their so-called numero uno God. But Dagon fell at the feet of the ark. Do you remember? He fell down right before the ark and he kind of broke apart in pieces. And so the priests had to go in there and they had gorilla glue back in the day. And they tried to glue Dagon back together. Kind of tried to put him back up on his pedestal. You okay? You having a bad day? Can we, can we put a band-aid on your, over your eye here? Look, if you have to pick up your God and glue him back together, you may want to switch gods. We've all heard the commercial. Apparently Dagon started it. I've fallen and I can't get up. All right, so the priest, sorry, the priest comes scurrying in there, put their, but the picture here is that Dagon is really worshiping before the true God, falling down, if you will, before the ark. And it did not go well for the Philistines when the ark was there. In fact, finally, they shipped it off in a cart. They said, we need to get this thing out of here. We're getting diseases and problems that we won't go into uh, this afternoon. But there was trouble in Philistine country. And so they sent the ark off and it ended up with some people from Beth Shemesh. And those people from Beth Shemesh looked into the ark and God killed thousands of people in that village as well. God is holy. And he says, I will be treated as holy. Now, this is what ha has to happen with the false idols. They need to be burned. And that's what David and his men did. They carried them away and burned them, 22 now the Philistines came up once again and spread themselves out in the valley of Rephaim. Have you noticed that the enemy doesn't give up just after one victory? Sometimes we, we win a victory over something in our flesh, a habitual sin pattern, and we say something like this, man, I've been good for a week. I got it going on. I got this Christian thing figured out. I read a chapter of my Bible this morning. I witnessed to somebody at work. I, I turned on Christian radio instead of sports talk or whatever. I'm good now. And the enemy comes again. And we've got to always be vigilant, right? We need to rest in the Lord, but we need to put on the full armor of God. Luke 4.13 says, When the devil had finished every temptation against Jesus, he departed from him until an opportune time. Just when you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. Sometimes when we're feeling the most overconfident is when we are the most vulnerable. So we just need to pay attention. We need to pay attention to times when we are poured out. Oftentimes for a pastor, it's right after you've preached something. It's a Monday. It can be hard. And you need to understand your vulnerabilities. And so here's what happens. David didn't assume the same battle plan was gonna work, 23. When David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go directly up against the second attack, circle around behind them and come at them in front of the balsam trees. And it shall be, when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, I don't know if this is angels or what, what it is, then you shall act promptly for the Lord will have gone out before you to strike the army of the Philistines. Don't assume the same battle plan's gonna work the same every time. Pray about it again. And you get confirmation. And this time, he was told, look, wait until you hear the sound in the balsam trees. I don't know if this was angels up there with a, I don't know if it was trained squirrels that the Lord just spoke to, to run around in the trees. But as soon as they heard it, 
And David heard it. He knew that the Lord had given him the victory and they could go out and strike the Philistines with his help. And David did so, 25. Just as the Lord had commanded him, he struck down the Philistines from Geba as far as Getzer, about, a 20 mile, about 20 miles west of Jerusalem. So this is a larger campaign. And here's what 1 Chronicles 14, 17 says after this happened. It says, the fame of David went up, went out into all the lands and the Lord brought the fear of him, of David, to all the nations. David's fame all over the area was beginning to be noticed. People were taking note of this great king of Israel. This is really starting the glory period for the, for the uh, nation of Israel. This is when Jerusalem becomes that main city and uh, the, the people of the world are looking round about at what's going on. And Solomon later will be visited by many people from other uh, areas. And so now here's what happens, moving into chapter six, verse one. Now David again gathered all the chosen men, likely the troops of Israel, 30,000, six, two. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah, or Lords of Judah. This is also known as Kiriath Jerim, or the city of forests, which we'll take note of. To bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. So David now has victory. He's back in the capital and he thinks to himself, you know what? We need to bring the ark back to the nation. He had pitched a tent for the ark and the ark of the covenant was the closest representation that they had of God. And it was kind of like, think of it this way. It was kind of like being one nation under God. It was bringing the ark as the focal point for the nation that represented the presence of God. And I don't know everything that was going on in David's mind. I don't know if he thought it would bring additional blessing. I don't know if he was just thinking that this is the way to best honor God. But 1 Chronicles 13 tells us what David did. This is verses one through four. David, 1 Chronicles 13, one, consulted with the captains of the thousands, the hundreds, and even with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if it is from the Lord our God, let us send everywhere to our kinsmen who remain in all the land of Israel, also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their cities and with the pasture lands, that they may meet with us. And let us bring back the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Then all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. First Chronicles 13 one through four. So David did consult the people. But one thing that we don't read is that David prayed about this. We don't read that he inquired of the Lord. We just know he met with the people. He said, do you think this sounds good? He did say, if this is of the Lord, this will be a good thing. And David went to move the ark. The question of why can be asked, why he wanted to move it. We could ask that question. Was it for blessing? Was it to honor God? I think it was to honor God. But the real issue is not going to be the why or the what. It's going to be the how. How David moves the ark is going to be at the center of this story. In the modern church, we're hearing a lot about the ends justify the means. So we do things to reach out to people, to get them in the church, because after all, once we get them in, then we can preach to them. And look, there are certain things that we should be doing to get unbelievers in. We're doing an outreach on Halloween night, an alternative. But we should not be playing secular music to bring them in. Why do we need to do that? Do you think someone coming to church expects to hear secular music? They hear it all week long. They finally walk into a church, and then if you're playing secular music... What are, you, what are you accomplishing? Oh, we want you to know we're just like the world. They finally decided to walk in the church. I think they're expecting to hear a few songs about Jesus. Would you agree? So look, if the guy finally walked in and he's sitting on the back row and he's just breathing a little easier because lightning didn't strike him at the back door, <laughs> let's give him Jesus. Well, David is gonna move the ark and he placed the ark, they placed the ark, verse three, chapter six of 2 Samuel, on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, some of you guys are from Ohio, close. The sons of Abinadab were leading the new cart. Now we don't know if Uzzah and Ahio were Levites, but we do know it's likely that they were priests. They were sons of Abinadab. And there's a new cart here. The ark is put on a cart 
and these guys are leading it. And they brought, they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, by the way, which was on the hill. Just a side note, the ark sat at this location for at least 70 years. It was pretty much forgotten by the nation. It was kind of secluded because of things that had happened around it. People were dying. People were getting diseases. There were also blessings associated with the ark, but it depended on kind of who the people were and how they were treating it. And so it was left up on this hill, almost forgotten by the nation, tucked away. You know, you, you watch programs today about the lost ark. They finally, finally found the lost ark of the covenant. Well, they haven't found it. But there was intrigue in David's heart about moving this ark because he knew everything that it represented. And so they brought the ark of God. They were walking ahead of the ark, verse five. Meanwhile, David and all the household, house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood. They had lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, a few people from Mexico there, and cymbals. Can you believe that? castanets were there too. And they were walking before the ark and they were celebrating. David was a musician, by the way. He played some sort of guitar. He was a skillful musician and he had a heart for worship. He wrote most of the Psalms in the Psalter. In the Psalm book are David's songs. David loved to worship the Lord with instruments and so forth. And so they had everything out. They had tambourines, they had cymbals and all God's drummers said, amen. They had everything there. But when they came to the threshing floor, just let's park here for a second. I've told you guys, the Hebrew word for holy means that which comes out of the threshing floor. To be holy in life means God separates the wheat from the chaff. It is interesting to me just to note that what's about to take place happens near a threshing floor. They came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen nearly upset it. So the oxen are pulling this cart. The ark is put on the cart, some sort of wheels. And the ark begins to wobble a little bit. And Uzzah reached out to steady the ark. Sounds like a good deed, doesn't it? We don't want the ark to fall over. That would be really bad, don't you think? We want to steady that thing. And he reached out to steady the ark. And the anger of the Lord, verse seven, burned against Uzzah and God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. You wanna talk about a party killer? <laughs> no pun intended. All of a sudden, you're having this celebration, you're bringing the ark of God, you're celebrating the nation. Into the new capital comes what represents symbolically the presence of God. God is symbolized in the ark. The ark is called the ark of the covenant. Covenant speaks of relationship between him and his people. And the ark's coming in and everybody's celebrating and there's music and there's worship going on. And all of a sudden, Uzzah reaches out just to kind of save the ark, if you will, steady it and bam, he's killed on the spot. You can imagine everybody stopping, the music stops. Everybody looks down and you have a dead man right there. End of party. It's all over. Some of you are looking at this. Some of you have heard this before. You've read it before. This may be the first time you've ever seen this before. And you say, wow, the God of the Old Testament is not to be trifled with. Oh, I have news for you. In the book of Acts, God did the same thing to a husband and wife. They lied about an offering that they had given. So please don't do that. It's not a good career move. <laughs> And God killed both of them in Acts chapter five. That's the New Testament, by the way. And so all of a sudden, because of his irreverent act, NIV, end of verse seven, his error, ESV, New King James, he died there by the ark of God. And you just have to be saying, what is going on? Why did God strike Uzzah in this way? Psalm 80 verse one says, give ear shepherd of Israel, Thou who does lead Joseph like a flock, thou who art enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. If y'all look at the picture here, right above the cherubim, those angels' wings, God, it was said that he was enthroned there, that it was his dwelling, if you will. His special glory would descend on the holy of holies. And in many ways, this was symbolic, but sometimes it was literally the Shekinah of God that would come down there. And it was not to be messed with. 
In fact, people who looked at God in the Old Testament and had some sort of interaction, they would often say, I have seen God and I'm not dead. There was a reverence for God. There was an understanding that our God is a consuming fire. Psalm 99 verse one says, the Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He's enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise thy great and awesome name. Holy is he, Psalm 99, one through three. God is holy. But why did this happen? Why was Uzzah killed on the spot? Let's take a look at the book of Numbers. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, chapter four. Turn to the book of Numbers, chapter four. Let's take a look. This is now um, in the life of Israel under the leadership of Moses. The Ark of the Covenant was built and it's described in Exodus 25. It was built of the gold and the wood, as I mentioned before. And uh, specific instructions were given. And then this kind of adds to it. Numbers 4, verse 4. This is the work of the descendants of Kohath, Numbers 4, 4, in the tent of meeting, concerning the most holy things, the furniture in the temple or tabernacle. When the camp sets out, Aaron and his son shall go in and they shall take down the veil of the screen, cover the ark of the testimony with it, and they shall lay a covering of porpoise skin on it and shall spread over it cloth of pure blue and shall insert its poles. Just two things to note here very simply. When the tabernacle, which was a tent in the wilderness, which moved when Israel moved, wasn't a permanent structure. When it moved, they were given specific details on how to move the furnishings. And they were told about the Ark of the Covenant a couple of things. You are to cover it porpoise skin and then other cloth is to put on. And I would imagine porpoise skin is pretty thick. And then you are to carry it. Remember how they were supposed to carry it? They had poles. And the Levites, specifically the family of Kohath within the Levitical line, was given this responsibility. And they were to carry it a certain way. Now notice, uh, this is verse 11 of the same chapter. Over the golden altar, they shall spread a blue cloth and cover it with covering of porpoise skin and shall insert poles. Look at uh, verse 12. They're talking about the utensils covered with porpoise skin. Put them on carrying bars. Look at verse 13, same chapter. They shall take away the ashes from the altar and spread purple cloth. Verse 14, talking about the utensils again and so forth, the basins. End of 14, they shall spread a cover of porpoise skin over it and insert poles. 15, when Aaron and his sons finish covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them so that they may not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. Skip down to 19. But do this to them, that they may live and not die. When they approach the most holy objects, Aaron and his son shall go in and assign each of them to his work and to his load. But they shall not go in to see the holy objects, even for a moment, lest they die. Now that's some pretty clear instruction. This, this uh, Ark of the Covenant is to be covered and carried. And it would appear from the celebration that was happening in Jerusalem on the cart that the ark was open to everybody's visibility. It doesn't appear to be covered. There's nothing mentioned that the ark is covered and it's on a cart and not being what? Carried. And when Uzzah touched it, God said, you don't do that. And he killed him on the spot. And all God's people said, gulp. Wow, God is holy. Now, how many of you have seen the first Indiana Jones movie? If you haven't, you'll need to repent, but just please raise your hand. Oh, please, you guys had to have seen the movie. Okay, so do you remember the Nazis, those Nazis, they, they steal the ark and they take it out into this, this uh, kind of solitary place and they're gonna do a Jewish ritual to see the treasures of the ark, right? So they do a prayer in Hebrew over it. And remember, Indy and Miriam, his girlfriend, are tied up at the pole, right? And so all of a sudden, you know, Indy says to Miriam, some weird sounds start happening. He says, whatever happens, don't look at it, Miriam. No matter how hard it gets, no matter the screams, no matter what, 
Don't look at it. And do you remember what happens? The wind and the fire of God happens and it's great cinema. There are faces melting and heads exploding. Oh, it's wonderful. I've watched it so many times. Sorry. And, but bad guys are getting theirs and so it's kind of cool. And here's what happens. They're at this pole and the fury of God's passing through and both their eyes are closed. Don't look at it. Whatever you do. And finally, God takes them all down. He, the ark, the lid slams back. God takes it, deals with everybody. And all of a sudden, when it's all over, they open their eyes. Do you know that story was written by a Jew? He knows what he's talking about. Because to look on the holy things meant death. It meant that you were gonna die. You were not to gaze upon it. And here's a comment from Warren Wiersbe. The church today needs to heed this reminder and return to the word of God for an understanding of the will of God. No amount of unity of enthusiasm can compensate for disobedience. When God's work is done in man's way and we imitate the world instead of obeying the word, we can never expect the blessing of God. The crowds may approve of what we do, but what about the approval of God? The way of the world is ultimately the way of death, close quote. Oh, you can gain crowds you can get the applause of man. But the question is, have you done things God's way or not? Because ultimately, he's the one you need to please. And so here's what happens. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 8. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. It means a bursting out against Uzzah, by the way. And so David, verse 9 in chapter 6, was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into, into the city of David or Jerusalem with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. David said, man, I can't bring the ark in here. Look what's happened. David feared the Lord. David was angry and filled with fear. Now you may have been there in some point of your Christian journey. Maybe, maybe, God did something and you were fearful and maybe you were angry. David was angry here. What was he angry about? What God had done on the spot. How many sleepless nights do you think David stayed up in the following evenings wrestling with what should I have done different? What, what, what should I have done? You know, should I bring the ark? Can, can I ever bring the ark here? What's God trying to say to me? But let me ask you, just put your thinking cap on for a second. Don't you think one person in that parade who had a little theological training could have said, hey guys, excuse me, wait a minute. I've been reading Numbers 4 in my devotions. And what I read there is that the Levites from the family of Kohath are supposed to carry this ark on poles and it's supposed to be covered and putting it on a new cart is what the Philistines did. That's the pagan way. Don't put it on a new cart. It's right here in the Bible. See this? This is what it says. Nobody said anything. Either A, they didn't know their Bible, and I find that hard to believe that they didn't know the first five books of Moses. They didn't know the Torah. Or secondly, it was what we call a sin of omission. They didn't say anything. And I would tell you in the modern church, there's two big issues. One, we are often ignorant of the scripture because we don't read it. And two, even when we know better, we commit the sin of omission. We omit what is right by not saying anything. Why do we do that? Because many of us have embraced the theory in the Latin of non rockabotus Which means, whatever you do, no rocket a boat. Or, we do it for purposes of P period, C period, which is called political correctness. We don't want to say anything because we're afraid of what someone might think of us. So they stayed quiet and Uzzah died. Let me ask you. There was a high cost, right? We don't do things God's way or somebody knows better and they don't go up to David and say, David, wait a minute, God is holy. You can't have that thing uncovered. You can't put it on a cart. Let's go do a Bible study and let's figure out how to do this. 
Maybe we need to do that more with our families. Maybe we need to do that more with our decision-making in business. Maybe we need to do that more with our marriages or our relational issues or a spiritual decision that we're about to make or times when we want to justify a decision that we're making because we think, well, the end will be good, so that'll justify how I do this. I know it's a little off. I know it's not the way God, but it's going to be good in the end. You ever say that? It's going to be good in the end, and then you got to step over Uzzah. Right? And here's what's going on. And so the ark goes into this house of Obed-Edom. He's a Gittite. Now it was told, King David, that the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. And David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. Now the ark's sitting there and it's been there for a little bit. And all of a sudden, three months is what we're told in verse 11, the Lord starts blessing Obed-Edom and all his household. I don't know what these blessings look like, but maybe family members were getting along and crops were good and there was a lot of peace in the house. I don't know what the blessings were, but the king heard about it in Jerusalem about 10 miles away and said, let's go get the ark. Can you imagine being Obed-Edom? No, man, come on, king. Let it just stay in the back bedroom for another three months or so. Things are looking good here, right? But the king wanted to take the ark away. And so this is what he does. He went up, he got the ark, and now there's an opportunity to move it. Second chances are about to be before us. We all get second chances in life. Praise God, third and fourth and fifth and 105th chances. But here's the key. If you learn a lesson in the first go around, don't repeat the same mistake again. What's the old saying? The one thing we've learned from history is that we don't learn from history. We just keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again. So here's what they did. They got a Bible out. First Chronicles 15, one says, David said, no one, verse two, no one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. And so they assembled Israel and they carried the ark. This is First Chronicles 15, 13 says, because you did not carry it at the first, the Lord our God made an outburst on us for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. First Chronicles 15, 13. So David says, look, consecrate yourselves, get the poles, put the ark on your shoulders. Let's do this the right way. So let's just say that you're at take two. You have a second chance to do something God's way this time. Can I suggest to you? You pray about it. You search the scriptures. You know what you're supposed to do and you execute the plan. So here's what happens. So it was that when the bearers of the ark, that indicates they have it on poles, had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling, 2 Samuel 6, 14. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod, which is a priestly garment. By the way, in uh, uh, 1 Chronicles, it says he was also wearing the royal robes plus the priestly garment. He represents the priest king, the greater David, Jesus Christ. So get this, so David's there and David begins dancing before the Lord with all his might. I was listening to the comedian Brian Regan recently and he's a really funny guy and it's a lot of clean comedy. And so he said, you know, do you ever just think about where something like dancing came from? Do you think two people were just standing across from each other, looking at each other and then one day they said something like this, you know, instead of us just standing here looking at each other like this, why don't we just start moving a little? I mean, think about it. Where did dancing come from? Who thought of this? You know what? We'll just play some music and we'll just... Now, this is where I live, right here on the dance floor, Pastor Mark, right here. Maybe just a little bit of this. <laughs> now, let me ask you. See, this is where... You ever been at a wedding? <laughs> And somebody gets on the dance floor and now you have a completely different image of that person than you ever had before. You're like, oh my goodness, there's Pastor Michael. <laughs> what is going on? Dancing is a strange thing, isn't it? And some of you look quite strange when you're doing it. We, we must confess. Some of you just stay in your seat and drink your fruit punch. We've seen you out there. It's not pretty. But anyway, 
Now, it's getting a little hot in here. I don't know if it's me, but can we check the air conditioners? <laughs> Should we dance? Is there a place for that? Well, here's what it says in Psalm 30, verse 11. It says, you've turned my mourning into dancing. It says in Psalm 150, the last of the Psalms, verse four, praise him with timbrel and dancing. In Matthew 11, Jesus is addressing the generation that largely rejected him. And he says, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. John came neither eating nor drinking and you say, he has a demon. The son of man, Jesus, came eating and drinking and they say, behold, he's a gluttonous man and a drunkard and a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. John came and he came in abstinence. He was in the desert. He had camel's hair on. He, he invented the locust and honey cereal. You guys all know that? Covered locust and honey. It was a great glorious cereal back in the day. That was his diet right? And he took a Nazarite vow and he, he did all that came with it. And Jesus was at parties with people and he was there amongst the crowd. And Walter Martin put it well, John the Baptist could not please people by abstinence and Jesus couldn't please them by participation. So why do you think you are going to please them? I mean, let's face it. The religious leadership wouldn't be pleased with John the Baptist and they weren't pleased with Jesus because it was more about them and not about God's ways. And so here's David. He's dancing with all his might. And David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of trumpet. First Chronicles 15, 16 said they had loud sounding cymbals. They were raising sounds of joy. They had instruments. And it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, 16, that Michael, the daughter of Saul, she's not called David's wife here, but the daughter of Saul looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord and she despised him in her heart. She saw the king, she looked out the window, she saw the celebration and she is called Saul's daughter here and she despises him. You know, the Bible says Jesus was despised and rejected by men. He divested himself of the royal robes, if you will. He, he came to us in the linen ephod. He is our great high priest. He, Melchizedek pictures him as a king priest of Salem. He is the one that we go to. He ever lives to make intercession for his people. And he came and divested himself of the royal robes and tried to show us who God was. And they killed him for it. They despised him in their hearts. There's nothing new under the sun. And so David's dancing and Michael looks at him and she doesn't appreciate it. And she despised him in her heart. And so they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent, which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord, both of which point to Jesus Christ. And when David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. That's something a priest would do, blessing the people. And further, he distributed to all the people, to all the multitude of Israel, both to men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each one. Now the Hebrew here is oatmeal raisin cookies, just so you guys know. Just write that down in the margin. What? It's really not. But this is justification for sweet fellowship on Sunday mornings. Donuts. Pace yourself. We know, Right? But David does something incredible. He sends out sweets to the people. What a king. Oh my goodness. This is a king that you're gonna wanna follow, right? And they have some sort of fellowship meal. All the people receive it and they all departed to their house and it was celebration. They moved the ark the right way. They placed it where it belonged. God obviously was pleased. The people were pleased. David had danced with all his might. He had led the nation. He had celebrated the Lord. He had made it about God. But, there's always a but, verse 20. When David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, again not called David's wife, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants, maids, as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. 
You come home, you've been at the retreat, you're on a spiritual high, you wanna come back and bless your household. This is great, it's wonderful. We had a breakthrough spiritually. You come home, it ain't so good. She says, oh, you're home. <laughs> I gotta do this from a man's perspective. I'm sorry, ladies, but this is just the way the text reads. And she says, oh, by the way, you look like a fool out there. Wow. Here's the king of Israel, right? Here's his wife, at least one of his wives, and she despises him. Well, I don't know what was going on in her heart. I don't know why, but the fact that she's called the daughter of Saul twice tells you a little bit about maybe some of the interaction. And so David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father. Now, I would just say this. Communication 101 in marriage is probably not the thing. Start bringing fathers and mothers into it. Don't highly recommend this. But here's what the Bible says. It was before the Lord who chose me above your daddy. <laughs> Sorry, but here, here it is. And above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. Listen, you may have had an issue with how I conducted myself today, but I will tell you this. From my reading of the scripture, I don't think David was exposing himself or doing anything you know, wrong here. I think he just acted more like a common person or like a, a priest. He was among the crowd celebrating the Lord. After all, the king of Israel is supposed to be God. Amen. David was learning how to be a good king by following the Lord. And scholars believe that this movement of the ark into Jerusalem, there are at least 11 psalms written around this occasion. Here's just one of them. Listen, Psalm 24, 7 through 10 says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah, that's Psalm 24, 7 through 10. Can you imagine Psalms being birthed in the moment? Worship going up to God, but somebody standing there gone. I don't like it. And look, that is what's happening in this text. Now, I will say this to you. I don't think dancing is to be the norm in churches. I really don't. I think that this is around festivals and normal occasions, or excuse me, uh, uh, special occasions. But this was appropriate for David to point to the Lord. It was appropriate to the occasion. And David says, I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished there's a variant reading here. It could be your eyes or my eyes, but here's the deal. David said, look, I'm not worried about my reputation here. I'm not in a popularity contest here. This day was about pleasing God, not you and not anybody else. That's pretty firm. And here's what happens. This is the end of the account. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, third time she's described that way, had no child to the day of her death. Wow. You have to just park there for a moment to understand the significance of that. For a woman in Israel not to be able to have a child was probably the worst thing that she could imagine. And by the way, there's a sub layer here. The sub layer is this, that eliminated the house of Saul from having offspring to challenge the throne of David. And some people say, well, maybe this means that David was never with her from this point forward. He ignored her. He wasn't intimate with her again. I'm not sure that's what it means. I think probably what it means is that the Lord made her barren until the day of her death. And you think, wow, this is it's radical, it's sobering. What do I do with this text? What's my application? Here's what it is. Lord, help me to live my life your way. Let me do things your way. Now, we're all in a discovery process, right? There's things I know today about God and the Bible I didn't know 10 years ago. Sometimes I'm hearing a message and it, you know, it's the first time maybe some of you have heard this and you're like, wow, <laughs> going to put that one into the uh, 
consideration for this coming week. God is holy. That's right. God is righteous. He's not to be trifled with. I want to do things his way. And I will say this to you. But I am so glad that there's a mercy seat. <laughs> and above those cherubim where God is enthroned as the King of kings and Lord of lords, on that mercy seat, blood was sprinkled for my transgression, for my sin against God. If you, O oh Lord, kept a record of sin, O oh Lord, who could stand? I can't tell you how many times I've messed up. I've not done things God's way. But when he's showed me something, would to God that I would say, okay, Lord, I'm gonna amend that way now. You see, if I know God's ways and then I just refuse to do them, then what? Then it's on me. Father, we are before you as your people. As we move through the Bible, it's highs and lows, certainly in this chapter. There's things to be celebrated and David getting victories over the Philistines and then we watch this scene. It seems to be the right thing to do, but then it's done in the wrong way and, and Lord, we see your holiness. And Uzzah died that day and David learned a hard lesson about being the king. It's great responsibility. But it forced the nation back to their Bibles. What a great thing. And Lord, we live in a time when there's a lot of head scratchers out there. And we, some of us can't make heads or tails of what's been going on in this nation. We've just been watching things that are almost inexplicable. But if it drives the nation back to you and back to our Bibles, then I pray that that would be a good and healthy thing for us, Lord. In many ways, the ark being set aside is a picture of a nation without God. And David did a good thing to try to bring the nation back, but you said, I will be treated as holy. And Lord, as we consider these things, as we consider who you are and how you've spoken, I pray that you'll help us to open our hearts to you and say, Lord, if there's any displeasing way in me, get it out and lead me in the everlasting way. Thank you for your grace and mercy when we fall short. Thank you for your patience with all of us, Lord. And I pray you'd bless your people. With your head and heart bowed, if you've not met Jesus Christ, if you've not met the mercy seat, Jesus, who spilled his blood, just cry out to him, Lord Jesus, pray to him, I believe in you. I believe in your death on the cross and your resurrection from the dead. I believe you are God. I believe you are holy. But thank you that you're also love and you came down to save me. Pray it if it's you. Forgive me of my sin. I believe you died and rose from the dead and I wanna follow you and do life your way. With all my imperfections and weaknesses, Lord, help me to follow you all the days of my life. Father, for those who are praying, those who may be rededicating, those who may be doing some heart searching for all of us, Lord, may you just strengthen our hearts and our passion to live for the King. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you stand?